Welcome to the Normal to Nomad podcast, where we share stories, thoughts, ideas, and conversations on our journey to find balance with nature in a technologically advanced world. We're coming to you today from the windy grand staircase of Utah. It is very windy, and it has been, and we're inside of our scamp recording this. My name's Baron. I love the outdoors, rock climbing, learning and teaching, and computers, and reptiles, and I'm a web developer, and I want to be Steve Irwin when I grow up. You're like the quintessential mountain man, too. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. And I'm Elsa, uh, artist, video editor. I have a YouTube channel with close to a quarter of a million subscribers that we have been pushing all of our scamp travels onto for the last couple years now. We live together in a 13-foot scamp trailer with our dog, Camp. He's a Shiba Inu. He looks looks like a fox and acts like a cat. And he's sleeping right over on the bed right now. We're sitting on the bench trying to hide away from all this wind coming into the windows. So today on this podcast, we're going to tell you the story of how and why we decided to live nomadically in our tiny little trailer and kind of how that's gone, what we've learned, and some of the exciting stories that we've gathered <laughs> along the way. For those of you who haven't seen the YouTube channel, uh, we have a video on why we chose to live in the scamp. It's a pretty detailed and awesome video that we've put a lot of time into, but the brief of how we found the scamp. I don't know, we'd been renting for a long time. We had rented, for the first uh, place that we got together was an apartment. And it was a pretty small apartment that was two levels, but pretty compact. And when we first moved in there, it seemed like it was going to be too small. But we made that work and really started to figure out how to do the minimalist thing. And Elsa set up a studio upstairs, and I primarily worked downstairs, and we had a pretty good flow going. Mm -hmm. That was when you initially brought up the tiny houses, and I had never seen them before, and it was... Not something that I thought we would ever do, but it was really interesting and they were really cute. And the appeal was truly that rent is so freaking expensive. And having a little house like that might kind of help us escape rent. Yeah. So then we lived in a house for a while, just us. Um, Renting and, still. Yeah, and that was like $900 a month plus mm -hmm. utilities. Which really doesn't sound like a ton of money, uh, but... It really is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. With $1,000 a month, we could buy most of the fundamental tool set that we use in the scamp. In like three and a half months, we could buy the scamp. Our whole house. Yeah. So it, it adds up quickly, even when compared to other people in the surrounding area, it wasn't a ton of money that we were paying. We actually almost bought this mini house in downtown Kansas City. It was super cute. It was the um, townhouse or the spare house. What do you call that? Guest house. Guest house behind a main house, but the main house was torn down. So on the lot, it was just the guest house. And very, it was very grandfathered tiny. in, and it was under a thousand square feet. Really cool little house. Yeah, I think it was like eighty or ninety thousand dollars, and. It ended up not working out, unfortunately. It was really cool, and our plan was going to be to renovate it and make it have the appeal of a tiny house and then rent it out and figure out our lives from there, but it didn't work out. So we looked into the tiny house thing. Went to Portland, toured some tiny houses, and that was really fun and um, seemed like the way that we were going to go. But then when we went to figure out financing, that was 
just a whole new can of worms because there's no, for the banks to finance a tiny house, they don't really know how to classify it because it's not an RV, it's not a home. And as far as their leverage goes in this situation, you could just go vanish with your new tiny house and then the the bank would have no way to recoup their losses on it. So it's a really sort of muddy area to try to get financing. And it was going to be about $80,000 for us to have a pre-built tiny house made for us. And ideally, if, if you are looking at tiny houses or if we were to do that at some point, we would have the housing situation figured out so then we could dump our own time into building a tiny house rather than spending all the money up front. What do you mean our housing situation figured out? Like you would have to be living somewhere where you're not paying rent. Oh, right. Like if we if we were to do it, we would get a piece of land, maybe live in the scamp and be building out the tiny house on the piece of land. Mm, yeah. But how we were thinking before we started doing this is that we would pay a company to build the tiny house for us and just finance it so that we wouldn't have to continue paying rent month to month. To live month. somewhere as we were building a tiny house and also try to work right. in between that. We could just take out a loan and get a tiny house. But then what caught us up was where the heck are we going to put a tiny house in Kansas City? Right. We're not. Kansas City is not made for tiny houses. On the West Coast and in the like Pacific Northwest, I think they're a little bit looser with oh, yeah, totally. their um, zoning laws. But even in, around, in and around the Midwest, even if we got our own piece of land, it would have to be out in the middle of nowhere. And then oftentimes there are county codes and everything that prevent it. So we would be running on illegal gray area which is something that we're pretty comfortable with <laughs> but to have that much of an investment um and like why be in the middle of nowhere kansas when i don't know that situation just it wasn't going to work and we realized that pretty quickly and then switched to the idea of rvs we reestablished what our intent was with doing tiny living and our personal intent was to move around and travel. We had no idea where we would ever want to plop a tiny house or have land or anything, so we were going to need to explore and see new places, and you cannot move tiny houses around very easily. At the same time, though, it was more of a matter of practicality than it was that we just wanted to go see the world. Yeah, very you know? true. Like, with the, with the whole way that we do this, it's not that we just want to travel to all the national parks and see this and see but that. But I do think that is the, kind of, the dream of it. That, like, yeah. that dream is in the idea of having an RV. Is oh, we're going to travel, it's going to be a super awesome experience. That's always there. And that's always kind of the, the, the goal that people kind of do this for you know yeah but we learned quickly and it was never our main intent but it's always there well for us we're going to be doing this for a while yeah so it's not we don't have to hustle to go to all the different places we can move more slowly and then it kind of extends our journey versus just being really short trips mm -hmm. you know like if we were limited on time then I think we would go and see the big things and do the big things more mm -hmm. often but since we have the time we can slow down and uh, get to know small towns and things mm -hmm. like that yeah that the style that we do it is not often broadcast 
broadcasted on YouTube. No, you know? it's not the standard. It's like standard van life, I feel like, is constantly traveling. Like, mm-hmm. we're here, now we're here, and you're just constantly on the road. And that's what costs so much money. Right, but how we like to do it, both because it costs us less money and we get to know places better, is we vet out a town or an area, and then we stay there for upwards of a month or more, Mm -hmm. just depending on the accommodations and how much Mm -hmm. camping and everything they have. And then we kind of slowly move rather than just constantly being on the move. And if we were in a different rig, I think like with the van or something, that may make more sense. Mm -hmm. But since we have the trailer and the Subaru and everything, it's, we have a perfect setup to kind of set up a base camp and then drive into town with the car. Yeah. Which vans cannot do. Right. But, um, we ended up getting the scamp in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, after searching tons of forums. They are not easy to come by, and especially, especially now. I think it's because of what we've done on YouTube. We've really made them... <laughs> it's part of it. But even when we were looking, getting a scamp for under ten grand, yeah. they were claimed, or people were going to look at them within hours of the mm-hmm. postings. We tried to claim... I think three or four or five or yeah. something, and then finally settled on one. You talked him down from forty five hundred on the phone to four thousand. Yeah. Then we got all the way to northern Minnesota, and there was quite a bit of water damage on the floor that yep. was fixable. But you talked him down uh, um, all the way to thirty seven hundred, which was pretty cool. That was excellent. I and still can't believe that. I know. And now you look at. On, you look at the same forums, and it, you would be very hard-pressed to find any type of condition of scamp for 3700 I still see them listed for around that if they have water damage and stuff, but ours was truly in pretty good shape. And they're fiberglass, so if any of the wood is rotting, you can fix that, but if there's a crack in the fiberglass, as long as you know what you're doing, you can kind of fix, fix it. That. You can fix anything. But So if you are looking at a scamp, just quick derailment. Um, it's the, the flooring is made out of particle board with a sort of resin impregnated into it. So over time, if there are any leaks, that stuff will develop wood rot. So that's really the thing to be mindful of. So if you get up underneath the scamp and like poke around on it, especially by the edges and see if any of the wood feels soft, then you can see if there's wood rot there. But even if there is, what we did is we just cut it out. Um, cut out all the wood rot and then cut pieces of wood to fit into the places that I cut out. And then I took liquid nails and liquid nails to men and then um, screwed it all in. So even if you have wood rot, you can still deal with that. And it's not the worst thing in the world. And I'm sure, I mean, it wouldn't be super easy or lovely to do but you could probably replace the floor pretty easy i feel like i've seen a lot of people do that and if you would if if we were to replace the floor we could do it with like a composite material that wouldn't rot Mm -hmm. out over time and it'd be far lighter so i feel like one day we will do that eventually that would be freaking awesome because we're going to need to replace these windows there's one of the windows that has four cracks in it just from bumping the scamp around so much we're going to one day do a huge overhaul of the scamp and it'll be crazy cool, but right now we're pretty content with the way that it is. Yeah, it works great. There's plenty of things that we would like to do. Okay. And another thing that we'll probably do relatively soon is the axle. Yeah, because, that's a necessary thing for its yeah. ability to move. Well, its ability to absorb shock beyond all else. I think like functionally it'll continue to roll, 
but the torsion <laughs> axle, like or the drag, yeah, the torsion axle, the it uses rubber around a tube, and the rubber in there, I think, has just gotten oxidized and hardened so that it doesn't absorb much shock. Mm. But we'll figure it out. It was October, I think, right, that we got the scamp. I believe so. Of 2016. Holy cow, it's 2019 right now. I had a trip planned to Thailand and Vietnam in November. So we had the scamp. We parked it in the backyard of our house in downtown Kansas City. We were kind of living in a not the best area of Yeah, it was Casey. a little sketchy. So Baron pulled it into the backyard, um, and he worked on it as I was in Thailand and Vietnam. Well, um, Elsa was in Asia... I was kind of living in it by myself in its sort of shambles state <laughs> and just trying to figure out all of the different things that we would need and like just clearing out the gross mold and just kind of making it livable. Because the day that I got back from Thailand, we had to move out of our house we were living in and move into the scamp, which by then you had moved to our friends Chelsea and Duran's backyard right. that was just a few blocks away in a better area of downtown Kansas City. With like a big tall fence and everything. Mm -hmm. And the scamp is so small, I don't think that that was necessarily legal. I don't know. But the scamp is so small that with the tall fences that they oh, had Oh, you mean keeping it in a backyard? Yeah. yeah. But like, if short term, you can probably get away with it if your camper doesn't look like crap and if you like are nice to your neighbors and mm -hmm. take care of your stuff. Yeah, I can see the like homeowners associations having a problem with the big RVs and stuff. That's probably totally. why they have those rules is because they are unsightly. And we can fit the scamp in a third car garage Yeah. In inside of the garage. So it's pretty dainty little guy. But that's a pretty good option if you can get away with it for a while as far as uh, keeping your rent down. And especially if you're moving into an RV full time to get it figured out. We owe a massive debt to Chelsea and Duran for that, for just giving us that space to kind of like right. have a runway. Right. We got to learn how exactly it was going to look, how we were going to sleep, and um, we got to use their bathroom inside, which was really nice to get us started. And, and we, we were ran also, their power out to it. Right. We were climbing at the climbing gym, so we showered there. Um, but it was a really viable living option. We got very comfortable and could have stayed there. We would have. Right. We just kept settling in, and they're some of our best friends, and they they would have people over all the time, so it was like, it was the perfect thing. Mm -hmm. But then eventually, they were like, all right, guys, because they had other people living in their house, too, and paying rent. They Airbnb it also. Right. So they were like, all right, you guys, you were doing this to, like, go travel, mm -hmm. so you should go do that. So they gently kicked us <laughs> yeah. out. Which was exactly what we needed. Yeah. Like, we needed a nudge. Otherwise, we would have just hung there for mm, God knows really how long. Comfortable. That was when we first got the balls to finally hook up the Mini Cooper and take it for a spin, the Scamp and the Mini, around Kansas City. And that was uh, pretty exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. I was nervous. But I had moved the Scamp around by hand enough to, at that point. To where I realized that the car could definitely do it. Like, I wasn't super worried that it just wouldn't work. Just because the Scamp is so balanced and um, lightweight. So, I, I don't know. What did the guys say? Didn't you call Mini Cooper and ask them about... I went in there and asked them. And they said... Asked no, them there's, about towing? Yeah, there's no... The Mini Cooper doesn't have a tow capacity. But then if you go to, like, 
Europe, they tow, they call it caravanning, and they tow with all kinds of different vehicles, different, uh, like teardrops and stuff. It's far more common out there, but here they're like, we're so safety oriented and insurance is such a sham and I don't know. And what you got, the, what's the little hitch called? The, it was a tow hitch. And that is made for minis for bikes, right? Primarily, yeah. But, but it, the, the hitch itself attached to the body had like a 2,000 pound tow capacity. Oh. But they said they didn't know if the frame could handle it. Mm. And FYI, scamps, when they are unloaded, weigh about, was is it 2,000 pounds? Mm-mm. 1,000? Yeah. Forget. All right, so when they were older, and ours, since it's gutted and everything, probably weighs less. Because if we had a fridge and furnace and all the um, water tanks and everything yeah. like they normally come with, I think out of the box, the newer ones are like 1,400 pounds or so. Mm. But ours is listed at like 1,100 um, so it's probably right around with all of our crap in here, but it's 1200 pounds or so, mm. which is super light in the world of RVs. Yeah. And that's how you're able to pull it around by hand, right? which has been huge. And the balancing of it, because you just tip it back a little bit and then you can wheel it around. So we bought the hitch for the mini. You installed it on the mini. Yeah. And I just pulled off the plastic bumper. Uh, and then I could bolt it directly onto the frame and it was built for that. And then I had to splice into the, uh, turn signals and the brakes and everything with the wiring harness because <laughs> minis don't come with a wiring harness <laughs> port for towing. That was the beauty of the Subaru. I didn't have to do any of that splicing. Oh, that's right. Cause they had a little terminal that you can just plug in the six pin connector into. So that was a beautiful thing. Because you had to do the same thing for the Subaru. Right. Install and, another tow hitch. Yeah, and I did that too, and it wasn't super complicated. Far less complicated than the Mini, actually. On the Mini, we had two snow tires because we were ready to go out to Colorado, and it was, I think, the 1st of February. It was super cold. And it's winter yeah. still, especially in Colorado. But And we... the lugs, so we had four snow tires available, but the lugs on the back wheels... We couldn't get them off because they were like frozen on there. So we were like, oh, well, I guess we're we'll just, just going to have to do these two. So we did that. And since it's front wheel drive, that was really what we needed. But it would have been nice to have snow tires on all four for sure. But we got to Breck. It worked. Yeah. We pulled up to our friend, hun friends Hunter and Sarah's house. And they had a super snowy driveway, big hill, and pulled it up. And it was great. And another little tidbit of knowledge that I've realized is that all-wheel drive is really inconsequential if the tires can't get grip. So if you're going to be spending a lot of time driving in the snow, it's more important to get snow tires um, than it is to have all-wheel drive. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Our studded snow tires on the Scamp, or on the Subaru, were freaking awesome. Yeah, they're winter. sick. When it's super icy, it's like we get better grip than we normally would on yeah. sand or it, whatever. The peace of mind element, too, is great. And we would have never bought studded snow tires, but they came with the Subaru. So. Oh, yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, so that was pretty clutch. Do you think we'll buy them again? I don't think we'll... No, I would like to get... So the General Grabber AT2s are the tires that I want to get. Hmm. It's like an all-terrain that works in snow. And that's part of what's so nice about the lift is now we can fit a little bit bigger tire in there. Mm, but then, cool. yeah, there's a lot of complexity there. Maybe that'll be another episode, maybe. 
Um, so once we got to Colorado, we kind of bounced from Breckenridge to Denver because in the beginning, we thought that we would be connecting to electricity a lot. I had researched what the term is boondocking when you don't have any hookups, like uh, black water hookups or electricity and all that. But uh, when we started, uh, people did boondock, but finding people doing that on YouTube even was pretty few and far between. Mm -hmm. Like it was a pretty niche thing. Most people that have RVs always are in RV parks or have hookups. So we thought most of the time in our travels, we would either be bouncing between like different friends or like new relationships that we build or like paying rent to people or we would be in RV parks and that kind of thing. Oh my gosh, that's right. Because we didn't even know at the time about the 14-day camping rule. No. We had no idea. We just thought we'd be in parks. Yeah. We forgot about that. And then we got out there and it was like, oh, we can just stay in the middle of nowhere for free. We got to figure this out. How? Who first told us about that? I don't know. We had, I like heard of it online but i just didn't know that that was even viable that boondocking was a viable option i thought we would have to go to an rv park like on the regular at Mm -hmm. least you know i think that's still an a piece of us slowly having to let go of our mainstream lifestyles or we couldn't have even fathomed that in the beginning no we had to slowly work into the idea right. of having no power. No power, no bathroom, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Like the first time that we went boondocking, I guess we can go there now, um, was in Buffalo Creek, and that's just outside of Breckenridge, a little ways away. No, outside of Denver. Outside of Denver, okay. Um, and at that point, we just had the BioLite camp stove, which uses sticks to cook on, and then. It turns the heat into power that we could use to charge our iPads and phones. And then anytime we wanted to use our computers, we had to go to town. And we didn't have a cell plan beyond like Mm -hmm. 10 gigs a month each, if that. I don't think we had any service out there either. Right. So we were just... And we had our (laughs) two two two-gallon water tanks Mm -hmm. and a Mr. Buddy heater that didn't work. Right. And it was haggard. I think we were only eating, like, soup. (laughs) Yeah, and And then Ken turned us on to canned salmon, and so we were doing that for a minute. (laughs) It was haggard, but we we were figuring it out. It was really fun, especially on the days where it was warm and sunny and not windy. The cold days, though, when our Mr. Bummer heater wouldn't work. (laughs) People talk about Mr. Buddies being awesome all the time, and ours must have just been a flop. And keep in mind, too, that they don't work well at high elevation. And we were at high elevation always, like so above 8,000 feet. And we'd wake up, and it's winter, and yeah. there's a big snowstorm that had just happened. And it's so cold that our freaking heater won't work. Because it has a... So how it knows that it's still lit is it has this little thermal coupler, which is like a little piece of metal that almost touches the pilot light. So... To keep the gas coming out of it, you have to keep the thermocoupler hot. So I was having to warm up the thermocoupler with a lighter to get the thing to even keep spitting out gas. And then sometimes it just wouldn't work at all. So you had to heat the heater in order for the heater to heat us. Right. And it often didn't work. Yeah. That thing was a piece of crap. Yeah, it was freaking miserable. And just being that (laughs) cold and, like, having to get up out of the covers. And then I work on getting it lit for, like, 30 minutes. And then it just doesn't work. 
were freezing. It was. We were just it was so rough. new. We had no idea what we were doing. And the whole time we were using those little green cans, so then they would run out of fuel so quickly. Mm-hmm. It was, it was brutal, but eventually we figured it out, and we. It was we, probably mostly brutal just because it was winter. Like we chose yeah. one of the hardest, probably the hardest season to start. Yeah. Docking. Just not knowing anything. Yeah, knowing absolutely nothing. Whereas yeah. now winter is likely our favorite season. Especially with the Cubic Mini. Right. We met a dude when we were boondocking. We meet all these old men, OGs, who have been doing awesome outdoor stuff or all kinds, all kinds of stories. We need to do a podcast just on the yeah, OGs, the OG solo menu. dude travelers yeah. that we've met. Yeah, not so many women, but a men. few. Uh, yeah. Few and far between. But. Mostly meet these awesome old single men in their RVs, but this one particular dude told us to hit up Buena Vista, Colorado. And quickly on him, he is the first person that I've ever heard of that trad climbs, which is where you place all your own protection, just by himself. Like, he doesn't have a climbing partner. He belays himself, places all of his gear, and climbs that way. And that's just, like, the coolest thing I've ever heard. We have the inkling that he may have climbed with the Patagonia founder, Yvonne Chouinard, but that's because in his book he says that he has a friend, Ken, that he climbed with forever ago. Um, it's unconfirmed. I think but... I think Ken's a legend. Yeah, but he would never say it. <laughs> yeah. He didn't admit it, but he told us to go to Buena Vista, Colorado, which is where a lot of excellent climbing is. Um, it's a beautiful spot, and it was our very first new town that we explored. We really had no reason not to go there. It was just a few hours away, and it was really scary at first, going to a completely new place, still having no idea how to freaking live in the scamp. And we were navigating mostly, well, with Google Maps, but then he had hand-drawn a map of, like, where the bathrooms were, where we could fill up water, where we should camp first. On, yeah, on in a little journal. Oh, your journal, that's right. Yeah, so we were kind of using that, and then we went to the camp spot that he had... (laughs) <laughs> um, noted on our journal, and then we're just out there in the sort of alpine desert. Still freaking cold, because our heater still didn't work. Right, and, and we it was in... like snowing still. It was cold. And it was, I don't know what inspired us to get it, but we got peppermint schnapps to <laughs> keep us warm and also help us sleep in the cold, and we called it our Yeti water. It worked really well. Yeah, it was great. I still, I still have like a deep appreciation for peppermint schnapps in my heart even though it's like super gnarly but yeah that helped us through because our heater was a crap box and we were using like a one person sleeping bag just kind of thrown over top of us and our bed was in shambles i cannot believe this recalling all these memories how did we it's almost like why did we do this to ourselves The bed, like, had this droop in the middle of it. Because it's the table. You can lift, in the models of these scamps, you can lift up that portion, and it becomes a table and two benches on either side. Our table had been damaged by water, so it was drooping in the middle, which is what we slept on every night. So we both had developed hip and back problems, (laughs) and we were sleeping on the 30-year-old cushions with, uh, just one sleeping bag. And we would let it like us. sag down for a while and then we would get up and <laughs> flip it so that it would sag the other way. It was miserable. 
But as we learned things through experience, we slowly upgraded everything. We had our BioLite stove. That was our only cook stove, our only way to cook our food for a year and a half because it was awesome. Those stoves are epic. We got a little propane tank from a camper next to us named Don, another OG old man. Um, we replaced our little bummer heater with a propane top heater, like a sunflower head that's meant to only be for outdoor use only, but we used it inside very safely and opened windows. And we had a carbon monoxide filter and we just mm -hmm. always vented it. Yeah, and we it never, never left it on at night. Yeah, and the carbon monoxide reader never went off. No. Um, we had bought a bag Yeti cooler, one of those ones that zip at the top. We had a six-gallon jug of water that we could use to store a bunch of water in as opposed to taking our two-gallon jugs into town every time we needed water. We had also purchased a small Goal Zero Yeti 400 AGM, AGM yep. battery and a 30-watt panel. We got the battery on ProDeal from a friend, and then we got the panel, I think, on Craigslist in Denver. Yep. And that allowed us to charge... Our phones, our iPads, our lights. Our laptops, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of. For a while. A little bit. Well, for a long time, that's all that we had to charge them. Yeah, for over a year. But we really had to limit our working hours in the scamp. Because it would drain pretty quick. Yeah, so we had to... The real time that we would, like, use our computers or charge them was at full sunlight. Mm-hmm. Because then we would like wait for it to top off the battery and then we would charge all of our things at optimum sunlight and then we could use our computers for a while. But mostly we just took our laptops into town and yeah. that was hard because it was, I couldn't really edit videos in the scamp at all because it was so power consuming that we relied on town quite a lot. Now that, that the time. technology's here though, um, if you were, if I were to restart this, I would use an iPad for almost everything. Because they're so much more efficient on power. Yeah, like you have your keyboard plugged into your iPad now, yeah. and it's basically a miniature, miniature computer. Right, and it pulls like no, no wattage. Yeah, and there are apps for photo editing, video editing. You can, we're doing a, a podcast right now on the iPad. Yeah. You can have your whole production studio on just an iPad. We just slowly upgraded everything. I, from the beginning, have really been wanting to... Upgrade our kitchenette area. It's been just this open, kind of gaping hole. And in the beginning, it didn't even have a shelf. It was just literally a hole. Because it was where the furnace and the propane cook stove and the refrigerator... We took all the doors off. We cut out all the propane. So it's just an open area that we use to put our food in and everything. And I've been wanting to make it an aesthetically pleasing and more functional space yes with drawers and doors so that we can use the whole thing but from the beginning baron has insisted that we stay adaptable with it because we never know what things are going to be going where especially in the beginning but even now with the seasons we change our food location, like when we have more fresh foods, we'll change that. Right now, Even we... based on the towns that we're in and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and what we have access to. I was sick with a parasite last month, and we have a whole container full of um, vitamins and tinctures and things that are taking up space now. So it's always changing. And I feel like we're going to be 
turning this kitchenette into a more aesthetically pleasing, functional kitchenette so soon. So soon, I feel it. We just need to find the right person to work with and do it. Because I would like, like, we could do it ourselves, but just to have somebody that has done things like this before and has worked with all the hinges and different things like that. Right. But we needed it to be adaptable. So you were totally right that not making things permanent in the beginning was the best way to do it. Because we didn't know what we were doing. So right. we would have built things out and then be like, oh shit, now we have to... Yeah, like with the Berkey that we have now that doesn't fit anywhere, yeah. <laughs> we're going to build that into the kitchenette. But if we had built out the kitchenette before that, yeah, you're totally right. Um, the first shelf that we actually put in was a shelf that I built out of aspen sticks and rope. Tourniquets. Making little tourniquets to <laughs> hold it together. It was awesome. And it didn't last. It broke as we moved. But it was really good. It worked good for a while. In. Yeah. But our biggest upgrade. Biggest upgrade I think we've ever had. Aside from getting the scamp itself was getting the Subaru. Subaru Forester XT 2004. <laughs> it was cool using the Mini for an entire year to tow the scamp. Partially because it was um, sort of a defiant gesture. Because people always say, like, they overcomplicate it and say all the different things that you have to have. If you you're have gonna... to have a truck. Yeah. If you're going to have an RV, you have to have a truck. But we pulled it off with a Mini Cooper for a while, and that was kind of... Felt good. Yeah. I mean, no excuses. Finally, though, the Mini started making some noises. And the thing about Minis is they're really hard to work on because it's a German car, and it's a tiny German car. So uh, when the transmission started to act up and make noises, I was like, okay, we should swap this for something else before it gets worse. Oh, so sad. We didn't even realize that day that, well, I didn't. You may have had it in your head, but... I had no idea that we would be leaving the Mini Cooper somewhere for good that day. Yeah. And then driving away in a different car. I had no idea. It all kind of fell together, and we forced it a little bit. <laughs> but, yeah, we went into Denver, and I called around, and we were we went to look at a different Forester. And it didn't, it didn't have the turbo, so it wasn't an XT. And we drove it, and it was just gutless. So then we found the XT at the dealership. And they had just brought it in, and they were like, yeah, it'll be ready to, we'll detail it, and it'll be ready tomorrow to look at. And I was like, well, today is the day. <laughs> so, yeah, we ended up getting the Forester, and it's worked out excellent. It was kind of sketchy at first. It was a little scary. What was? As on the test drive, the grill fell off. Oh, Which gosh. was like, what the... And the dealer was like, that's never happened to me before. Yeah. And then after we bought the car, we drove away. It was a big snowstorm, and the freaking windshield wiper blew off. Yeah. And the rearview mirror the next day fell off. We were like, oh, crap. Yeah. What did we do? But functionally, like, all of the, all of the big things that really matter... Have been awesome on It was car. just because they were quick to detail everything because right. we were, it, it had just gotten in that day and we were like, no, we, we want this car. So yeah. they quickly put all this stuff on and detailed it and stuff in a really crappy manner. But yeah. it worked out. We then used that as our tow vehicle. And that winter we took the whole setup, Subaru and Scamp, back to Kansas City. Oh, and we had to install the tow hitch and everything out in the woods like we drove 
the Subaru back to where we were camped and then shipped a tow hitch into town and then I had to install it like out in the woods. I forgot about that. What would we have done if you didn't get that on right? We would have just been stuck out there. Yeah. And it was freaking wintry. We yeah. were afraid. That was part of selecting the Subaru was because we didn't know if we were going to be able to get the scamp out with a Mini. Right. Remember? Because it was so snowy back there. Yeah. I don't know how we even And snowy it and muddy and, yeah, it was impossible. But then with the Subaru with its studded snow tires, we made it happen. Okay. So then we went back to Kansas City. Emptied everything out of the scamp. We had never done that before. We realized we had way too much stuff. And there's a video on this. It's kind of funny to look. Our, the third car garage of my parents' house was just full of crap <laughs> that somehow we fit in here. We had too many clothes. And I was just trying to like have all the things that we needed just in case because I didn't know... Right. All anything. the things that we thought would be essentials that was it's extremely downsized from any way that we've ever lived before. All the things we thought were essentials, we only ended up using a very small selection of. Especially tools. Yeah, I tried we had to bring a whole freaking storage container full of every tool you could basically imagine. Yeah, because I thought if things break or whatever, we'd just be screwed out in the middle of nowhere and I'd have to figure out how to fix it. <laughs> With no power. Once we had everything taken out of the scamp, we looked at it all, re-evaluated, and repacked all the real essentials back into the scamp. And I kind of felt like there was nothing in there at that time. We did a tour once we got out to Arizona, and it was so nice and so empty in here. Because I had taken a long time to organize things and get everything to where it finally made some semblance of sense. And that felt amazing mm -hmm. when right. we were at your parents' house, like, repacking everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because before it was just us cramming things into wherever they'd fit. Cause yeah. Because we had so much useless stuff. Well, like, the things that we had were all of our electronic-powered, like, uh, heater. A vacuum. A vacuum. <laughs> electronic cooked stove. Uh-huh, a skillet top yeah. thing. and A water boiler. Uh -huh. Just things that, you, that were handy when we did have power, but... Right then became quickly not handy. And we thought that we were going to have power forever. Mm -hmm, but that changed once we learned that you can boondock. Yeah. So then we sort of refined everything to function around solar at that point. From there, we decided that Arizona was up next because it was still winter at that point. Oh my gosh, and we were so done with the cold. Yeah. Because <laughs> we were using propane, a crappy propane heater that we couldn't leave on for very long because we didn't want to suffocate ourselves. And when we did, everything got very wet and moist in the scamp. Then we'd turn it off, it would all freeze, and then we'd turn it back on again and everything would thaw and drip, and it was miserable. So if you don't have a vented propane system, then the byproduct of burning propane is water. So it just puts water vapor in the air. So it, like the moisture in the air just makes it so bitingly cold that it's absolutely miserable. Mm -hmm. And Arizona was nice and dry. We, I mean, all the snowbirds go to Arizona in the winter. The drive there was pretty wild. Like, we didn't really realize, I don't think, how far away Arizona was. No, how much it was going to cost to get yeah. out there either. And it was one of those things we thought that we could kind of bonk our way down there and stay a little while in Texas and stuff. But once we were on the road, we got to Amarillo, Texas, or Amarillo, and it was 
cold. Mm-hmm. And all those places, it was just like, man, let's just get there. Mm-hmm. So then we just we decided to make it happen. New Mexico. We yeah. didn't stop anywhere in New Mexico. Just drove straight through it in one day. Even though New Mexico seems awesome, from mm-hmm. what I can tell. Yeah. We headed, was it straight to Sedona? Uh-huh. And then that was kind of a wild thing. That's where we met um, Morgan and David. Mm-hmm. Morgan and David were the ones who tipped us off to RTR, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, which is where our viewers go and hang out in the middle of the desert in Quartzsite, Arizona, for 10 days. That was a super fun thing. And figuring out Sedona before that was pretty epic. We thought there was a lot... We figured that there would be a lot more camping around Sedona than there really was, but we eventually found some really no, cool No, well, we spots. realized later, once we came back to Sedona, a month or two later, how much more camping there was. But okay. in the beginning, we didn't... We couldn't... We just still were kind of learning how to find camping in new areas, which has become a little bit easier. It's still always kind of a challenge when you get to new places. But at RTR, we met mostly older people. That was the crowd that we had never known before. A crowd that they have their own click and niche on YouTube of these small YouTubers who just full-time live in their RVs. They're people who are living on Social Security, retirement, welfare. Uh, They're all, not all of them, but a lot of them are just super tan because they just get to hang out, sit outside. Uh, Lots of them travel in groups of friends it's such a crazy culture, but it was not exactly us. We learned a lot from them. Totally, and they're so much fun and very cool people. And we traveled around with a pack of them for a minute. Uh-huh. But we just love our solitude, you know? Right, and we do so many things online. We're very tech-savvy nomads, which is not what you often find. So we didn't have a lot of people who related to that. Um, it was also hard to find coffee shops and spots to work in. The way that we do life in the scamp, it wasn't as suitable for us as it would be for somebody who, like, like with them. A, with a giant, if you had a giant RV and, like, big propane tanks and you could go a while and then just go take your tanks in and dump them and you were just chilling with all your friends, it would have been perfect. Mm-hmm. But that was before we had our Wi-Fi hotspot and everything, so we were really leaning on coffee shops to get work done. So we eventually, from there, found Lake Havasu, mm-hmm. and that was one of the first, that was really the first area in Arizona that lended, lended itself to our style. Mm-hmm. We made some friends there, and it was a really nice place, but still, always, we're always, even now as we're in Utah, just dying to get back to Colorado. Colorado is just our place. We love the mountains. I love the pine trees. And the culture is really cool, too. Yeah, young people, you can't... Pretty health conscious for the most part. Yeah, because you can't live up high at altitude in the mountains and not be a badass. Yeah. So all the people who are out there are just so cool and inspiring and very down-to-earth, humble people. So then when we got back to Colorado, right, we started getting the upgrades that we knew that we needed. Mm Mm-hmm. So we got uh, the Goal Zero Lithium battery that we got on their open box deal. 1,000. Yeah, and that's 1,000 watt hours. And since it's a lithium, you can run it all the way down to like near zero. Yeah, like a laptop battery. Yeah, so it's functionally double and or 
triple what we used to have. Because the AGM, if you run it below 50%, it will damage the battery. So we had, it's basically a 200 watt hour battery. And then we picked up a 1000 watt hour battery. That was lithium. With a 100 watt panel. So that upgrade has been one of, we didn't even know what to do with all that extra power at first. Now it's perfect. Yeah. We got uh, an unlimited Wi-Fi hotspot. That was very life-changing. Being able to upload YouTube videos from the middle of the forest as long as we have signal, which we usually do because we have a cell booster that we got from WeBoost. Um, we picked up new cameras. We both have um, our own cameras. We got two new drones over the course of the last year. In all of this, we... we got all these things and acquired all these things over a span of months. It wasn't yeah. just like, okay, let's get all the things yeah, right, right now. Right. We got a water filter. We have a Berkey that we actually just got. We replaced the tires on the Scamp and we just replaced the bearings. We've done a lot of Subaru work and we've done all of this using the money that we've saved in not paying rent, in not paying utilities, um, and also the brand relationships that we've developed using social media, like the WeBoost. Like BioLite, the the reason we got our BioLite stove was because you'd been looking at them for a long time. Yeah, I had followed them since their Kickstarter. And when we bought the BioLite stove, it was like, okay, let's get this thing and hopefully we can make a video about it. And then hopefully the company will reach out to us and we can kind of build a relationship from there, mm-hmm. which is what we ended up doing. And they've been our number one company that we worked with ever since. Yeah. We've done a lot for BioLite and they've done a lot for us. They gave us our first light system that we've used for the last two years. And we still use it. The base oh, yeah. XL and the site light mini. Yeah. Cause you can charge them off of our goal zero batteries. Whereas the their, others required double yeah. a batteries and those can be cumbersome when you're living in a little scamp. For sure. How brand relationships work is we have an audience and the audience has a specific demographic that appeals to different brands. So we can make videos or different things and share it with our audience, you guys. And if they're appealing, then that's great advertising for brands. And it's a lot cheaper for them to send us products than it is for them to like pay for Advertising, advertising on YouTube and stuff. And I already had a social media following from my body paint and makeup days. I think I had 100,000 at that time. So the plan was always to utilize social media to help us out a little bit. But it wasn't until we started working with BioLite that we really understood the value that we could that we could provide companies and that companies could also provide us. Because instead of being... I mean, it's... It, it's nice to be paid in money, but when you're paid in money, you get 1099 working on taxes now. and It adds a lot of complexity to the projects, too. Right. Whereas these companies, instead, they just send us what, exact, they send us what we need, like the WeBoost. That's a $400 thing. The Cubic Mini Wood Stove, that's a four, that ended up being yeah. like a $500 plus dollar thing. And we get to do what we do best, which is make content for these companies, get it out to you guys who also are interested in these things. And if these companies were to use that same money, like the cost of sending us those products is a few hundred dollars. And then they get an infinite number of videos and interaction from that. So from their perspective, it's like a, totally a win-win. And if it, once we learn to articulate that well, 
um, then we could leverage it. Mm-hmm. I've, we've done that with BioLite, WeBoost, Cubic Mini, Cacao on it, um, a few other smaller ones, but we don't take company offers that don't directly resonate with us because we don't have room for everything. And there's companies reaching out to me all the time for little things. Hey, will you do a review on this or that? And we just don't have the space. We can't even really take gifts and things from subscribers just because we can't deal with friends and family. (laughs) Yeah, true. We can't deal with the packaging or, um, everything has to be very selective that we have in here. We have no room for anything that is not supposed to be right. supposed to be here but the internet has been hugely helpful in this lifestyle i feel like we haven't run into very many nomads who are as involved in utilizing the power of the internet as we are and that's what we really want to use this podcast for is to teach how you can combine the epic unlimited power of the internet with a very ecologically minded and simple lifestyle. We, I don't know how we would even do this without the internet, but that's kind of our style. Like a lot of people do like different wolfing and working at different places and seasonal jobs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But we lean on it heavy and we would like to be able to articulate how we do that. And yeah. Finding campsites, making money, communicating with people, researching the locations that we stay it's opened the doors to so many things in this lifestyle. And I think a lot of people are afraid of, afraid of the internet. And afraid of computers. Even. But that's also, it, there's so much mental practice in this too. We utilize not only the power of the internet, but the power of the mind. Because you really have to change your mindset in order to make this type of a thing work. You have to let go of preconceived ideas of how life is supposed to be lived. You have to be a lot more patient. You have to slow down you and have to accept be things. Oh my gosh, frugality is freedom. It's the only way that we've been able to do this. Um, and it's also a matter of learning how to work together with one another, building relationships with people around us and between ourselves. And being adaptable and patient with life and just being able to be dynamic and not stick to too tightly to a plan there's so many elements of just these last two minutes of things that we're going to dive so much deeper into in these next episodes of the podcast i am really stoked about i think this will be a really cool thing it's a fun way for us to get all these stories out too that just don't have time to be put on youtube in the videos thank you guys for tuning into this first podcast we're stoked to begin this journey with you if you want to support us You can check out our Patreon and just look up normal to nomad on Patreon. And we're still building that community out and getting it all figured out. So if you have any suggestions or anything for Patreon, please let us know. If you want to see visually most of the things that we've talked about in this video, check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Elsa Ray. We have been documenting all of this for the last two years. To get more information on this podcast and the show notes, you can check out my website. It's normal2nomad.com. Awesome. Well, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in, guys.